0: Hi, my name is Kylie Jones and I'm a senior international studies major at Pepperdine University. Welcome to Global Tides, a podcast where I interview Pepperdine faculty and students who have produced excellent social science research with an international component. In an increasingly interconnected world, Global Tides seeks to illuminate the importance of cross-cultural studies for dismantling stereotypes, encouraging empathy, and reaching peace. This is episode five. Migration, democratic backsliding, environmental degradation. These are all contemporary issues plaguing Latin America and the Caribbean. So, why do individuals choose to migrate to or from the region? How has populism contributed to democratic recession? How do the decisions of policymakers directly impact Latin communities? Today, I talk to Madeline Carrera, Senior Political Science and Sociology double major, Abraham Kakish, Senior Business Administration and Hispanic Studies double major, and Savannah Potter, Senior International Studies major, as they discuss these very questions through their research. Welcome y'all. Hi, Hi. Kylie.
1: And thanks for having us.
0: Of course. I'm super excited to dive into all of the very interesting research projects that you all are undertaking. Um but firstly, before we get into the research, can you each tell me a little bit about yourself, your research interests, and your involvement at Pepperdine?
2: Sure. Um so my name is Madeline, as you said. Um I have been studying Caribbean immigration to the United States. Um, I kind of got into this topic of research because I last spring interned with the Department of State. And a lot of the focus, um, while well, I was in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement in the Western Hemispheres. Um, so I worked a lot with the Caribbean team. And I noticed that um, a lot of the policies that were being implemented in the Caribbean could have been helped or aided with um, craving or immigration um, research. So that's kind of how I got started in it and um, why I decided to do that.
0: Awesome. Um, are you involved in anything on campus?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I'm actually the uh, vice president for First Gen Club. Um, I'm also a part of Jumpstart, which is an early education program. I'm the intern this year, and I'm also part of um, the Latino Student Association. Awesome.
1: This is Abraham. Um, I'm a first generation um, Middle Eastern American coming from Jordan and Lebanon. Um, Considering my research, I really just think that there is a history of stuff that needs to be corrected when we're thinking about the United States. Um, We're on the forefront of a lot of great projects in the world, but um, there's still a lot to be learned and a a lot to be changed in this country. so that's a little bit about my research. I'm the vice president with um, Crossroads, which is our gender and sexuality alliance. Um, I think that's a pretty good little intro.
3: Hmm. All right. Um, my name is Savannah, and my research has largely been um, on Latin America and the Caribbean this year but mainly I've been focusing on investigating this sort of wealth inequality globally, the north-south divide. I believe that's an important topic that especially came out during the pandemic with vaccine distribution, and it's been continuing to be a growing problem as we recover from that pandemic. And in terms of my involvement on campus, I've largely been involved in Model United Nations. I'm a proud member of that team, and thankfully we're flying out this Friday for our weekly conference. And I've also been a serving as an executive board member of the Latinx Student Association. And I was also involved in Jumpstart my first year, which was a fantastic opportunity to volunteer and, and work with the local community.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So nice to meet you all. Firstly, Savannah, let's get started with your research project. You've been working on two different research projects, both on Latin America and the Caribbean. Can you tell me a little bit more about your two different projects?
3: Yes. Um... For Model UN, we've largely been pre- preparing for the conference, as I mentioned earlier, and especially me and my partner have been preparing for the ECLAC, the Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, and that we have tackled those issues on twofold. Uh, the first issue is increasing uh, access to renewable energy and also technical and edu- educational training for the citizens there. Um, So this region in particular is quite interesting because how diversified that their energy sector actually is. Uh, For example, in Brazil and Costa Rica, about 66% of their total energy production is in hydropower, which is significantly higher than the United States can say. We only have about um, 12% of our energy sector from renewable sources. Um, But the issue is for Latin America is that There is so much left untapped. There's so much potential that they can really dig into. For example, they're really lacking on solar power and wind power. Mexico has a huge potential to uh, deeply capitalize on um, all of the sun that they have, especially a lot in the equatorial region. Um, So much sun and very little solar panel out there. And countries like Argentina can capitalize on wind power. Uh, with winds coasting down those those mountains, I'm sure our students in BA can uh, perhaps recognize how much needed that, that, that resource is. For my capstone project, I've largely been researching um, uh, why certain governments in the region have been able to take advantage of the pandemic and commit horrendous democratic violations, whereas other countries have either voluntarily or have been forced to stay within the rule of law. And I've been mainly focusing on two case studies with that. It's El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. And they both vary uh, widely on that Y variable of democratic violations. El Salvador, unfortunately, did take advantage of the pandemic and has been locking away protesters and opposition governments in order um, to gain executive power in the name of covid but the Dominican Republic has largely had zero democratic violations, and they are on the far other scale. So I've sort of been comparing and contrasting those two countries and to see the sort of antecedent variables that lead to those outcomes.
0: Awesome. That's all really interesting research. I'm also in Mali UN and working on a senior thesis. So I kind of seen have seen firsthand the kind of difference in the type of research between Mali UN and researching on your own. But can you talk a little bit about what has been different about doing research for Model UN and doing research for your own personal thesis?
3: Yeah, sure. So Model UN is really interesting because the whole premise of that organization is that you're really trying to adapt the political culture and the political ideas of a different country that you're usually not supposed to be from. Uh, For this year, we are representing Norway. So everything is about Norway, what they think, what they want, what they act like, everything about their solutions for Latin America. But the issue with that is that um, when I, as an American researcher, am researching on my own, I'm inevitably influenced by the culture in the United States, no matter how much I try to run from it. I am subject to propaganda like anyone else is, and we have to use critical thinking skills to get beyond our own country from where we live. for example, when I'm researching El Salvador or other countries in Latin America, I come across a lot of sources from politicians or American bureaucrats that's that's either condemning certain actors for certain things and condemning actors for other things that Norway wouldn't have the same stance on. For example, the U.S. is very sensitive about these uh, executives growing closer to China. That's a big no-no in the U.S., and we largely think that here in the U.S. that they kind of automatically want to be on our side, that they belong with us. We sort of take them, take them for advantage on that. And our main interest in the region, I would say, is for immigration. The US does want stability in the region, but they largely want stability so they do not immigrate here <laughs> to the US. Whereas Norway, from my experience researching their positions, is big on multilateralism and liberal institutions. And they're a little bit more f- cooperation for cooperation cooperation's uh, sake. and um, For Norway, um, they want their worldview to be spreaded as well. They want gender inclusion, they want respect for liberal institutions, they want democracy, perhaps more social inequality. But the difference there is that they're not going to fund militant groups to make sure that happens. And I think largely those have been the two big differences between um, researching as Norway and then researching as an American.
1: I love the idea that you're addressing American propaganda. going as far back as the Spanish-American War, something that a lot of folks don't recognize is we call it the Spanish-American War, but the Filipino folks who died by the thousands call it the American genocide. And I think it's really interesting that you consider that in your research.
3: Yeah, thank you. It's a huge thing to step outside from yourself and understand that um the world is not america centric nor should it should it be there's people who have their own interests and just because they ref- just because they are in opposition of american interests does not necessarily mean they're wrong so we definitely have to take opinions from different sides and not just trust the us government for their word
0: um a little bit later in your paper you talk about how populism can lead to democratic backsliding as evidenced through your case study on el salvador can you take me through your findings a little bit? What did you discover as you analyzed El Salvador?
3: Right. So as I've mentioned, I've been measuring democratic violations in the region. And my biggest hypothesis for that right now is populism with the case study of El Salvador. Um, I've been spending a lot of time researching Nayib Bukele. Um He wears backwards baseball caps and aviators and skinny jeans to his press conferences as the president of El Salvador. Uh, But most interesting about him is scholars have been labeling him an authoritarian populist, perhaps the first populist of the millennial generation. Um, He is quite charismatic, like most populists are. um, But For a quick rundown of populism, largely for what the scholarship has pointed to, is populism is generally an ideational approach. There's ideas that different politicians can adopt either from the left or the right. This man is a center-right populist, which is quite unusual because they're usually on the far left and the far right. But he attacks both sides from the center, but he's still populist he adopts the rhetoric that he is representing the good working class people against the evil elite. It's all about this dichotomy that he in places in his campaign. Um, so largely, how populism and that type of ideas lead to democratic violations is that he he wants his constituents to believe that everyone who opposes him is corrupt. He does not. He wants a world in which there are no opposition and there is no moral or legal opposition towards him. And Bukele can get away with all of this because his popularity is so high. He can use the military to force legislature to vote how he wants to because the people are convinced that everyone opposing him is corrupt and elite. So he can sort of use this rhetoric to his advantage in any way he pleases. He was able to remove all of the Supreme Court justices in El Salvador replace them with loyalists to his party, and still keep a 90% approval rating. But this is largely because El Salvador has had such a horrible history after their civil war with those two governments that have been continuously continuously hoarding power for the last decades. So it's not like there isn't real pain in El Salvador that he's capitalizing on. Um, I'm also looking at some of the antecedent variables, perhaps why the people of El Salvador have chosen to elect a populist leader. Uh, I've been looking at the civil society organizations to to sort of explain for that rhetoric. Um, So these civil civil society organizations have been targeted since the Civil War. Um, Any of the sort of grassroots campaigns were heavily targeted by the militant conservative government and without these non-governmental organizations providing services for people, taking care of these people outside of the government, they have to rely on bureaucrats and the executive to take care of all of their needs, and that leads them particularly susceptible to this kind of rhetoric. So those are the kind of things that I've been researching, um, and unfortunately for a lot of Latin America, I've come across this sort of, um, this sort of scale where they can either choose between an elitist government that, co- that continuously commits white-collar crime or an authoritarian populist. For Latin America, that's a lot of their realities, and it's very unfortunate.
0: Political change and democratic backsliding and the endangerment of political freedoms, it, they're all definitely things that can impact a person's decision to leave a country or to immigrate from a country. Migration is a hot topic right now, as the world faces some of its worst migration crises ever. Madeline, your research project focuses on migration in the Caribbean. If you had to summarize your project into a snappy soundbite for our listeners, what would that be?
2: Yeah, so um, without giving away too quickly my findings, um, I would say that Caribbean immigration is extremely uh, complex in the sense that It's very difficult to find data in the region um, because all of the islands are very small. Um, It's just it's extremely hard to fill that gap of uh, data that's missing and a a lot of the times um, just mishandled within the region. So um, we don't have that. Um, However, the lack of data also makes it really interesting because every piece of data that you find um, is new. So um, it's kind of like a new discovery every time you find something and you're able to piece together different types of work. So all in all, it's very complex, though.
0: Awesome. I'm super interested Mm -hmm. and uh, excited to kind of dive in more to your project with you. Firstly, can you take me through your methodology? How did you craft a means of evaluating the most significant factors in a person's decision to migrate?
2: Yeah, so... um, At the risk of sounding too jargony, (laughs) um, I used a panel model, um, and essentially that's a model that looks at the repeated measure over time. So I used my country, and I looked at 21 different um, Caribbean countries that had available data. Um, I used the country as the cross-sectional marker and my year as the overtime marker. And I used the number of US legal admittances by country and year, and I logged it in order to get linearity for when I did my regression. Um, So I actually created this data set by hand, um, and it took me months to complete, over seven months. Um, But ultimately, I ended up with 14 variables. So as I stated, my dependent variable was the U.S. Legal Admittances, and then my independent variables were language and language family. And I chose that variable, those variables, in order to account for why a person would Immigrate to the us if they're from a french speaking country for example, um, and why their decision to to immigrate to an english speaking country um, I guess essentially why they would do that versus going to a country that has their native language um, so that's what the language variable accounts for and then um, essentially I split up my theories of economics versus security uh, because my hypothesis was I was testing to see whether or not economic variables or those, like, push or pull factors um, had a bigger effect than the security variables. Um, so I looked at education levels, the primary, secondary, and tertiary um, levels of education, and, um, and then GDP per capita and Gini index Um, And then for my security variables, I looked at natural disaster impact, population density, homicide rates, freedom score and pro slash anti U.S. views, um, which was an interesting variable to try to measure because um, I put that together um, and I uh, essentially measured it by whether or not that country had uh, friendly diplomatic relations with the U.S. So... um, the only country that didn't have those diplomatic relations was Cuba. So um, that was kind of interesting to see. Um, And, you know, a lot of the data, like I said, uh, was missing. So I had to account with for that mathematically. Um, So
0: great. Um, So now the heart of your research, how about your findings? What did you discover? Yeah,
2: so um, when I ran my regression table, I found out that the Dutch language family variable came out significant, as well as GDP per capita, and the pro-slash-anti-US views variable that I was talking about. Um, So the GDP per capita variable suggests that financial status has an effect on the individual's decision to immigrate, which um, I think was something that I expected um, going into this project, and then finally, um, the pro slash anti U.S. variable suggested that um, this one was very interesting to me, that the more positive views a person has on the U.S., the less likely they are to immigrate to the U.S. Um, and so when I when I was looking at why this would happen, um, I was saying that it this happened in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, in which. A lot of the immigration standards for Nicaraguan immigrants was eased because they were coming from a communist country. So this variable basically suggests that the U.S. would be less likely to allow the entrance of individuals that are coming from pro-U.S. Um, countries because it would almost villainize our foreign policy. And so then they would be more likely to admit people from like Cuba, for example, because they're coming from communist countries. um, And it's it shows the U.S. in more of like a heroic light. So I think that was the most interesting discovery that I found throughout my research.
0: Wow, that's super interesting and not as intuitive as you would um, as you would imagine how um, the U.S. would be friendlier to immigrants from countries that they're not as friendly diplomatically with. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, Madeline tackles migration to the US, but Abraham, you chose to analyze an issue gravely uh, impacting Latin communities within the US environmental pollution as a consequence of urban planning. Can you give me an overview of the research that you are conducting?
1: Yeah, um, well, firstly, I just wanted to kind of give a round of applause to Madeline and Savannah for talking about the world at large and the issues surrounding the whole globe. Um, I'm going to bring it kind of local, bringing it back to California with my research. Um, I'm from California, so I think it is really important, um, cause I've, I've grown up seeing these consequences. Um, So I'm looking at places like Calabasas versus Malibu, um, kind of the topic of Tarzana and Reseda and how those compare to those towns. Um, Fresno is another big place I'm looking at. Um, The first modern landfill in the whole world was in Fresno. Um, And the majority of my research is focusing on my hometown. Um, So I'm from San Dimas, Uh, it's a little cowboy town two hours from Malibu, um, we have a rodeo that's been going on for the past 60 years, um, San Dimas, Claremont, Laverne, and Upland are towns that are largely white population, and the surrounding towns of Ontario, Pomona, Azusa, Covina are all largely Latino population. Um, so what I'm doing is a compare and contrast kind of style research. Um, what goes on in those white-dominated towns versus what goes on in the Latino areas. Um, and there's a lot of empirical, you know, the percentages, the numbers, this thing and that thing. But in terms of this podcast, I think what's most interesting is kind of some historical and anecdotal evidence that I've found. Um, So I'm gonna start by kinda talking about Hollenbeck Park in Boyle Heights versus Benelli Park in my hometown of San Dimas. Um, In the late 1930s, um, Los Angeles as a county received a huge, um, over 100 million, I think, um, donation for the purpose of building freeways. And one thing that they vowed was not to pave over parks. We know that parks establish a community presence, make a place feel more safe, and um, add a familial aspect to a community. Um, So that was a big vow that they planned on not breaking. However, Hollenbeck Park and Benelli Park were both in the initial plans for the freeway routing system. Um, And as you can imagine, Hollenbeck Park in Boyle Heights is surrounded by a community of over 70% Latino folk, and Benelli Park in San Dimas is uh, 65 and some percent um, white population. So in these late years of the 40s, the 50s, the 30s, there was a lot of protests surrounding these two parks and the destination that the freeway was gonna take. It ultimately ended up with both Boyle Heights and San Dimas creating a large and loud opposition towards the freeway planning. And it ended up that Boyle Heights is now covered in freeways. Hollenbeck Park and its beautiful lake are very polluted and see hundreds of cars pass for every minute of time. Um, Whereas Benelli Park in this white community that I've been talking about was paved around. They spent millions of dollars routing the freeway around Benelli Park. Um, so that's a little bit on highways and how they changed what the, uh, Southern California looks like. Um, the other parts of my research are about landfills and single-family zoning laws and how those um, have negatively and disproportionately affected the Latino community of Southern California, um, but I thought that little anecdote on the two parks um, was the coolest thing to present here.
3: I really appreciate that you brought that anecdotal experience to your research. I feel like as political scientists, we are very wrapped around in the empirical numbers, and it's nice to see how clearly it affects real people's lives, it's not just numbers, it's not just on the global scale. Because as an international study student, we do look at a mile-high world view but it is very relevant to go down in the communities and see what kind of these policies interact with. So um, thanks to Abe for bringing that up. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. that.
0: You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier that part of the reason why you felt your research was so important is because it is affecting the communities that you grew up in. Um, So for our listeners, what are some things that our listeners can take home from it? Why do you believe your research is so important?
1: Yeah, um, I just want everyone to think critically. Consider who benefits from legislation, from the actions that your politicians are taking, from the actions that surround you. Um, Really take a look at what's happening around you. Educate yourself, be aware. Um, Think a bit about why certain people donate so much money to your local politician um, and how the people who generally receive the negative, you know, they, they receive the short end of the stick. They don't really have that monetary power to change your politician's mind. Um, I kind of just want everybody to consider the other side. Um, really look at that.
0: Thanks so much for listening. This podcast episode was edited by Kylie Jones. Tune in next time for a conversation with Jesse B. Bolton, Elizabeth Ford, and Clara Koos on the intersection of culture, foreign policy, and conflict transformation.